Last week we were wrapping up talking a little bit, little bit about folk Islam and how that connected to, um, to the Quran. So folk Islam, when I say that, we're talking about Islam as it's manifested every day. So popular Islam. Islam, what it looks like when you, you know, you're in a country, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, whether you're here in Dearborn, uh, what it looks like. Um, and we start talking a little bit about that and how, um, so this was an example. We talked about these, uh, the Tureg, uh, tribesmen in, uh, you know, west, northwest Africa. And they're, they have a propensity here, or, uh, I guess a habit, or it's just the importance of the Quran used in a magical sense. So that what they would do is they, in these leather pouches that they wear on their chest, both the men and the women, uh, they have Quranic verses written inside these, and then they, they wear them almost like a good luck charm. Uh, and also, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, they actually use that ink uh, from writing those Quranic verses and drink it, and then, you know, use that as a way of dealing with sickness and illness. All of this kind of pointing to the fact that um, Muslims see the Quran in a, in a very uh, supernatural sense. Uh, so that's why, you know, the connection between why the Quran is, there's resistance to translate the Quran uh, from Arabic, uh, why, you know, the Quran is treated with a lot of respect, the actual copies of the Quran, which we said, if you remember, these are mushafs, what uh, an actual copy of the Quran is called. Um, and we'll actually see uh, in our upcoming topic the importance of the uh Hafiz, the ones who memorize the Quran, the reciters of the Quran, uh, why these, from right from the beginning, are important, because they're the ones, right from the beginning, with copies of the Quran that go out as Islam spreads away from the Arabian Peninsula, um, they send out copies of the Quran. Uh, Uthman is the one who correlates the Quran and sends it out. Uh, he's the third, uh, well... He, he's the caliph that sends it out, and he also sends out the people who recite the Quran, the memorizers of the Quran, in order to teach all this. So a very, there's this connection there. Uh, and I wanted to kind of get into, we won't, but I just want to mention, and uh, at least get this thinking about, why we, um, apologetics attempts in, in engaging Muslims using Quranic verses. And we've kind of touched on that, but, you know, thinking about how, how, uh, wise it is to engage in that debate, um, you know, uh, in light of what we've been learning. So, just kind of wrapping up what we what we talked about last week. Um, so the format. So this is the actual nuts and bolts of the Quran, which surprisingly we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, 114 chapters. They're called surahs. So a surah uh, are chapters of the Quran. Uh, the individual individual verses are known as ayahs. Um, the numbering and the ordering we use today is not officially standardized until very recently. So the numbering system that's used in the Quran uh, is actually a 20th century uh, innovation. So 1924, and the Egyptian system came out to number and, and number the verses and number the, the chapters. Uh, chapters are, are large, uh, roughly organized from largest to smallest. So the largest chapters, largest surahs are at the beginning of the Quran. Smallest ones are in the end. Um, much, it's not organized chronologically. 
So, you know, you don't start, it's not like Genesis or Revelation. It's, you know, they're kind of all over. Uh, it's actually just the opposite in a lot of cases. So the, the oldest surahs are actually near the end of the book. They're the shortest ones. So generally speaking, the oldest parts of the Quran are the, the end, the ones near the end, which if you're, you know, talking about Arabic, it would be on your left-hand side, so you're right below. Um, uh, important exception to this is the first surah, which in, is the in the Arabic Fatiha. Um, it's the opening prayer. It's used in all Muslim rituals. You know, uh, not that important. Uh, well, it, that verse itself is important, but for our purposes, um, as I said, the, nur- the the surahs have been numbered, and the verses are are numbered. And a lot of times, in a book, in a reference point, you'll see like you would, like a biblical reference. So, you know, Surah 12, verse 3, or something like that. Uh, but as I say, they don't generally, Muslims don't generally memorize numbers like that. Uh, the names, they usually memorize it by names. So each Surah has a name, an unofficial name given to the Surah. Um, the the sur- names of the Surah are independent titles, uh, but usually reference something inside the Surah itself. So Surah 4 is called uh, Nisa, which is, refers to women, for instance. Um, Surah 34, uh, the city of Sabah, for instance. It refers to the city of Sabah, which is mentioned in the Surah. So it's it usually the names relate to what's inside the Surah at some point. Uh, and that's usually how a Muslim would rem- memorize it. They don't memorize it by numbers, or they don't refer to it usually in numbers. Uh, as if to make it more confusing for non-Arabic speakers, then there's no standardization for the translation or English names of the surahs. Uh, and so Muslims generally don't even refer to the surah to the verse number, but usually when they refer to a verse of the Quran, they quote it. They just quote it verbatim, you know, they'll quote it verbatim. So they usually don't refer to like how we would refer to like, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 or something. We, they don't do that. They just would recite the verse uh, or re- recite the beginning of the verse that they're re- referencing. Any questions on that? Um, so, Quranic approach to previous revelation. So, thinking about how the Quran deals with the Old Testament, how it deals with the New Testament. A fundamental Muslim doctrine is is a belief in the previous revelations. So, a belief in the Old Testament, a belief in the New Testament. Muslims believe that God had, has progressively revealed himself and his will to the nations and peoples since Adam. So a line of prophets, going back to Adam, where God has revealed himself. Um, and so a lot of times you actually hear uh, Muslims will quote John John sixteen twelve through 13, which I'll read. It says, I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So, you know, from a Christian perspective, we're talking about usually, you know, we're referring to the Holy Spirit with this verse. Muslims actually believe this affirms or is talk, pointing to Muhammad. So when they quote that verse, um, here I'll give and I'll read a couple uh, verses from the Quran to, to um, give an example of what we're talking about here. So Quran the. Uh, Surah 9 verses 30 through 31 the Jews say Ezra is God's son the Christians say Christ is God's son that is what they say with their mouths conforming 
with the unbelievers before them. May God fight them off, how they have perverted. They have taken the rabbis and monks as lords apart from God and the Messiah, the Son of Mary. And they were ordered to serve God alone. There is no God except him. Glory glory be to him above what they may associate with him. So in this section, the Quran presents a clear distinction between worshiping God and worshiping an intermediary as understood by Islam. Uh, And so it's, again, so they're saying that there was this revelation to the Jews. There's this revelation to the Christians, uh, but it's been perverted. The form, what was taken, was been perverted, perverted uh, or mistaken. Uh, and there's a, a uh, an idolatrous connection there. Um, and I just to also mention uh, the title Messiah in Arabic, al Masih. Uh, is presented as, as referring to name only, not indication, indicating status. And I think we may have mentioned that. Uh, so when it says, in that, when I re- what I just read, uh, they have taken the rabbis and monks as lords apart from God and the Messiah, the son of Mary. So sometimes you'll hear Christian apologists say, look, even in the Quran you, you refer to the Messiah, you know, and we were, we're reading into it a Christian sense of what that means, or a Jewish, Judeo-Christian sense of what Messiah means. When in actuality, the Muslims use that term Messiah as uh, not dignity, uh, talking about office or position. It's just referring to name only. Um, Another example, uh, chapter 20 of the Quran, 9 through 14. Had Moses' story ever reached you when he saw a fire and told his family, wait here, I have glimpsed the fire. Perhaps I can bring you a brand from it, or I shall find some guidance at the fire. When he came to it, a voice called out, Moses, I am your Lord. Take off your sandals. You are in a sacred valley too off. And myself have chosen you, so listen to this revelation. Indeed, I am God. There is no God except me. Therefore, serve me and perform the prayer of my remembrance. So this passage illustrates uh, in a nice way that the, Quran, the Quranic approach to previous revelation. The story itself is is familiar or, you know, referring to the Exodus 3 narrative, uh, but is presented here um, kind of cut away from the extensive narrative element that seems so essential to the Judaic, Judeo-Christian way of understanding scripture. So usually when we understand there's a whole lead up that we're we're dealing with when we talk about this, you know, we don't just jump right into the the scene there at the, when, you know, right when he's at the bush uh, or anything like that. But, you know, the Quran only doesn't deal with anything but the actual event. The Quran simply presents a summary of the story and gets directly to the religious moral a- aspect or religious moral point, uh, each aspect of which is, is central to the Islamic message. So in this case, clearly the emphasis is upon the oneness of God, where he says, indeed, I am God in this quoting the Quranic verse again, indeed I am God, there is no God except me. So that's the whole point of the verse for the, for the Muslim. It's not about, you know, what Moses, you know, anything else. It's about, uh, you know, this kind of monotheism, oneness of God. It's also the institution of prayer and the instruction of obedience to God as the essential element of faith. So to understand such passages fully in terms of a coherent overall narrative it is frequently necessary to place the Quranic accounts into the framework of the biblical tradition. So this fact emphasizes the need to consider an area of far broader, broader 
than Central Arabia when thinking of the original context of the message of Islam. So what that when I'm reading that quote, what we're talking about is then, you know, it, it doesn't, you really can't understand what the Quran's talking about without having this larger biblical narrative. You know, they, you actually need some kind of biblical, you know, you need some previous revelation to make sense of this. So, you know, if someone who has no knowledge just comes in and reads this account, they're not going to understand, well, who's this Abraham guy? You know, what's what's this account? What You know, I don't understand. So you almost have to have some kind of, some previous, you know, connection with Judaism or Christianity to, to make sense of it. Jim, yeah. How often do they use the, the Bible then, or do they ever? Uh, they don't. They don't. O- only to um, now they wouldn't. They basically. Uh, this is more talking about like at the inception point. You know when it's you're dealing with the beginnings of Islam and how it evolved or how it comes together. Uh, you would have needed some kind of understanding to do it. But now nowadays, like there would be no interaction. Uh, you know, as we were talking about last week, most Muslims haven't actually even read the whole Quran, uh, and so they won't they won't interact with the Old Testament because they believe ultimately that the Old Testament and the New Testament have been corrupted in some you know form or fashion. And some parts they may accept, other parts they're going to toss out. For instance, like with the New Testament, as I said, they'll quote John in order to push up their own narrative. But they would never; they actually would just. Um, any of Paul's writings, they would just throw out and dismiss. So nothing, Paul, nothing of the Pauline writings uh, would a Muslim say is authentic. You know, so they kind of cherry pick what they would accept or say that it hasn't been completely adulterated. Um, I don't know if that really is answering your question, but well, I guess today then, modern day Islamists, how would they then fill in the the holes? Yeah, with they basically would not, they really wouldn't, they would just give, now they're just kind of giving the story, and then saying that, um, because there's other parts of the Quran that kind of fill in enough of the gaps um, that they can understand a little bit of who this person Abraham is, that, you know, he follows this long line of prophets, and, you know, starting with Adam. Um, but where this all comes from doesn't make any sense outside of uh, the biblical narrative itself. That is, if there was no previous revelation, the Quran wouldn't make any sense at all. Uh, but there's enough in the Quran outside of these particular points that they can begin to say, well, you know, Abraham is this person, or, you know, that kind of thing. So they don't give the whole story like we would get. You know, uh, in, in Genesis, for instance, you get this long history of who these people are and what they've done and how they got to where they are. And you don't have any of that with the Quran. You just have these scenes plucked out and inserted and then a little bit of like um, uh, genealogy to say how we got here you know that, that this person is descended from Adam who's descended from this person so it, it seems like they would have to accept only part of what's said though right okay and they don't they say Jesus is a prophet but Jesus clearly says that I am the Son of God, right. so they wouldn't accept that. Right. You know, so they're just kind of right, and they're only they're only going to accept or re- even know the parts that someone else has taught them because it's not like they're ever going to a Muslim's not going to pick up the New Testament and say, you know, like this part I believe and this part I don't. The average Muslim, 
Uh, so at some point somebody would say that this part's okay, and you and they'll quote that verse. And since they're taking it out of context and cherry picking, anyways, the the larger community isn't going to catch on that you know they're cherry picking it like the way they are. So, but you're right. You're absolutely correct. Well, I'm a little confused. I guess <clears throat> I understood that the Quran was the revelation of Muhammad. Is that I mean that was it? That was his revelation. Is that true? It is. Okay, so yeah. how did Muhammad, who was illiterate, know about the Old or the New Testament? Well, that, so, yeah, and that's where we're, that's kind of the question, is that it's, it's not, it's God's revelation to Muhammad, so God is revealing these things to him, and that's the miraculous aspect from a Muslim. You know, he had no uh, understanding of this stuff, supposedly, or no knowledge of these broader contexts, and that's that, uh, what I was talking about, Central Arabia, you know, the Muslim claim that he's isolated in Central Arabia, he's not interacting with Jews and Christians, and somehow gets all this knowledge, and it had to have been from God, so that's pointing to the miraculous nature. The reality is, you know, coming from an outside standpoint looking in, is that there's no way he could have not had no interaction. Somebody along the way had to have inter- interacted, and that's why we talked about at the very beginning, you know, these... The Jews that were involved in the trade routes, the Christian that they interacted in the South and in across the the, the, the Gulf and, and across into East Africa, so they were inter- definitely interacting, but they weren't, I guess, claiming that it was more just, you know, we had no interaction. Muhammad received this revelation from God, and that's you know part of the miraculous nature of it. Yeah. And would you say that at that time, just because someone was illiterate, doesn't mean they were not educated because so many people were not and it was an oral based yeah society. so and, and that's a good or point as well yeah, yeah. Uh, the oral oral excuse me orality and oral nature of the, the culture so and we actually see this still in North Africa it's pretty it's actually you can there's been a lot of sociological studies that you know even tribes now in Africa they still use you know they're not written down these stories but they still pass them and um that was kind of why I was connecting the, the reciters of the Quran, because you know there's a science to the recitation, so they have to recite it perfectly, perfect tone, uh, perfect voweling, and the fact that they do that shows that it is capable in that culture to transmit these things in a pretty faithful way, just by word of mouth. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I have a two-part question. So you mentioned that the older revelation of Muhammad is actually at the back of the Quran. Generally, yeah. Okay. Mostly, yeah. Um, but I've, I've been taught in the past, though, as you go through the Quran, and, and as I've done some reading through it, it kind of gets more violent as you go through the book. Yeah. So you would say that his more violent approach of revelation mm-hmm. was his first revelation, and he became... Yeah. Turned that down some. Yeah, and so they... That, at the beginning. It's, uh, and it's... Refle- so a Muslim... So yeah, great question. Uh, and how a Muslim would not explain, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, the last, in our last session, is that a Muslim would deny that there's a connection with the revelation with what's going on around them. But the reality is, is that what Germans, the Germans in the 19th century, the way they broke up the Quran, that's why we talk about the Meccan and the Medinan surahs, is that the more violent surahs, the earlier ones, actually correspond with the more violent period of Muhammad's life when he was being persecuted in Mecca and then 
the warfare that followed with the, with the Meccan Qurayshi tribe. So that corresponds with that period of his life. So, you know, a Muslim would, would deny that it was a response to the violence. These, these verses correspond. But clearly there's a correspondence with that aspect of his life because, and then the pe- more peaceful period, which is when he comes into uh, the last years of his life when he's actually is able to take Mecca and, and then he controls Mecca and Medina when there's no more open warfare in that central part of Arabia. Um, corresponds with, you know, the, I've heard it had it explained to me that, you know, like, basically the, um, the ordering of daily life. So you, you de- begin to deal with the minutia of, of regulating the religious community. So it's no longer making these big breaks with the pre-Islamic life. It's now, uh, when you interact with your neighbor and when you do this and how you manage your house and kind of the day-to-day runnings of the Islamic life, those surahs tend to deal with that. Uh, and so it, it corresponds with the more peaceful part of Muhammad's life when he was able to, he was no longer leading the army in the active sense like he was early on. That he's actually that, at that point just ruling the community from the mosque in Medina. So. Just one more follow-up. Yeah. So then would you say that the more violent reflection of the Quran is a result of his, the persecution against him, or would it be his aggressiveness towards spreading Islam? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. So the question is, how how do we interpret the violence? Is it a matter of outside influence, you know, outside pushing in on him, or was this just something inherent in in Muhammad's um, approach to to spreading Islam, to a a violent nature? Um, I answer that. So I think um, if you just look at, I mean, the the, the historical sources, um, you know, just the sources that we have uh, seem to um, that there was a turn in Muhammad's life when he doesn't, he he no longer is pursuing uh, violence in the same way that he he was in the beginning, uh, and. For instance, when he's able to take, he takes the city of Mecca without any bloodshed at the very end. You know, so he's able to, and he doesn't, he doesn't, even though his generals were basically calling for bloodshed uh, against the Qurayshi tribe, he shows this <coughs> magnanimous spirit and this forgiving spirit. And again, this is one of the things that, that people would point to and say Muhammad was really, you know, the, the ideal Muslim because he showed, uh, you know, Mercy to the, the Qurayshi tribe who had persecuted him. Um, I think there's a, an aspect to the language, to the to the revelation, the revelations that we have in the Quran. The ambigu- ambiguous nature of it allows for violence. <coughs> so there, there's some kind of inherent violent nature to it, um, but I don't know. I guess just in my own personal opinion. I don't, again, this is my personal opinion. I don't know if, um, if it holds his whole life was that way. I guess, I don't, and I don't know if that's answering the question because, you know, there, most of the sources, even this is secular sources, would point to at the end of his life, he really, all he wanted to do was spend his time in the mosque and be with his family. 
and so that's what the people re- around him are recording, and maybe they're recording it to paint him in a positive light. But those are only things we have to go off of. And so I would say yes and yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's probably not answering the question. I, um, but I think there's obviously an inherent there's a violent nation we'll see it actually in our next topic as we look at the spread of Islam how Islam begins to spread and the first first Abu Bakr and Omar who are the first caliphs after um, Muhammad are like you know these great generals and they spread Islam violently and they they actually you know do it in such a great way they're able to defeat Byzantine and the Sassanid armies at, at key points, you know, and, and just there's a brutality to it that actually it switches because under Muhammad near the end, of, and so maybe this might answer near the end of Muhammad's life, you know, he puts certain cities under tribute around and outside uh, and like into Yemen and a little bit into North Arabia. He puts these cities under tribute, but he doesn't make them convert. He basically says to these cities, "Send us." Uh, this alms, they call it the zakat, send us this money, basically, and we'll leave you, we'll put you under tribute, and that's it. All you have to do is every, just however often, I don't know how often they send it, whether it was monthly, yearly, whatever, they would just send money to the, 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 uh, to Muhammad in Medina, the, the community. But he let them continue on in their, their way of life. So he, they actually, you know, he didn't put people to the sword as far as in making them convert at that early point. So in, at the end of Muhammad's life, but before the empire really spreads, Muhammad is allowing these uh, these different tribes to worship however they want, uh, to pursue their lifestyle, but he doesn't, and as long as they pay this money. And under Abu Bakr, and especially under Omar, that changes. So then it's like, you convert or you die. We burn the whole city, we're going to install a Muslim leader, and all, everyone converts at the point of death. So there's this conversion that takes place, definitely. And what allows for that, the nature of Islam, seems to allow for this thing. But at least under Muhammad's leadership, that doesn't seem to have been what he pursued at the end of his life. He didn't seem to have a coherent plan about what he was going to do with this thing. You know, And that's why... you know. To, to further point that evidence is the fact that he dies without naming a successor. There's nothing, you know, he just dies. The community's left in, you know, turmoil. What do we do now? Uh, so it really does point that he didn't have this coherent plan. He was just receiving these revelations and then feeding them out as soon as he would. He would literally, you know, I mean, they would be going somewhere in the middle of the desert and he would stop because he had just got revelation and then just start re- re- revealing this. So, you know, it, he would just be reciting this. And that was really what his you know what he wanted to do and what his main goal was so any other questions follow-ups on that yeah uh wes and then kind of. so you're you're saying then really that that uh toward the end i'm gonna deny this no, he he really kind of got you know mellow and and wasn't really out to to you know Make everybody Muslim, but but basically his followers were so. Really, since he was dead, Abu Bakr and Omar, I think, is are the two names. 
they just were pragmatic. In other words, they just said, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and they, they so, took the religion to its logical next step. So so really, according to the Quran, there, there isn't this convert or die. Or is there? Yeah. Well, there is. There is. But it's... Um, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like Muhammad was following... He was not <clears throat> applying that at that point in his life for some reason. Whatever reason it was, we don't know why, but he was not consistently applying that to his practice, way he interacted with those tribes. Right? Those tribes all were put under the sword at some point. But under Muhammad's leadership near the end of his life, for some reason, he did not He did not do that. So it would, even though it was in the Quran, he didn't follow that. Yeah, and we have to remember that the Quran isn't codified at that point. So we don't, there's no Quran, like when Muhammad's, there's no like single source until uh, Uthman. So you're talking the third caliph after, it takes, you know, 15, 20 years after Muhammad dead before they have a codified single version of the Quran. They had all the things written down, but it's not begin to be put into any kind of order, orderly thing where it's like, let's refer to these and let's deal with it in a coherent fashion. Um, so I don't know. It would it be uh, it wouldn't be historically accurate to refer to it as a Quran at that point because there's no Quran to speak of at that point. Because remember, Muhammad's still alive and he's still giving the revelations of the Quran during his lifetime. So in those areas of the world, maybe today or maybe in past time, that <clears throat> where it was convert or die. Are they going by just pragmatism, or are they going, or do they, or are they thinking, okay, this is what I need to do to be obedient to the Quran? I'll push that off. Okay. Yeah, because we're going to deal with why this change that happens during the follow during with the the caliphs, the change in the nature, uh, in our next topic, where you know the leadership that after that comes after Muhammad. There's a change that would happen, so we'll try to deal with that better at that point. Okay. You know, but, um, uh, let me get Ken's question well, real quick. Let her go ahead. Follow right. up on well, this question. Yeah, isn't it in Surah 2 where it talks about killing the infidel? Yeah, right. So, uh, and the, and I actually, I think I have, well, there's, um, it's Surah, there's Surah 9 of the sword, sword verse, they, or the sword chapter that they refer to. Uh, as well, so it's definitely clear, clearly in there. But again, we, why Muhammad wasn't applying this um, in his own lifetime? At the end, he he did obviously apply it at one point, uh, but at the end, why he wasn't? We, there's you know speculation as to why. So, and that's what we're trying to get at, right? As far as at this point, Ken. Okay, this is probably yes or no question. Um, is there any mention of Ismail and his? Uh, Twelve sons in the Quran. Uh, yes, but it's there is there's the Ishmael Ishmael the line, uh, you know his genealogy is is traced out in the Quran. No, it's Muhammad in that line anyway. Yeah, so all Muslims would trace their okay. their genealogy through Ishmael up to Abraham. Okay. So yeah, good question. All right, let me uh, keep pushing here. So that quote. Um, I just read, which we probably all forgot at this point. It helps us understand why the Quran incorporates certain themes and passages of both the Jewish and the Christian scriptures. The the borrowing brings in a noteworthy story in order to highlight some aspect of the Islamic worldview 
at the same time pointing to some practice or religious function in order to bring attention to its importance. So, but, but the difference from the biblical narratives helps us understand that what the Quran is doing is not just retelling or rebranding these biblical stories, rather incorporating known stories from the greater region in order to push an Islamic theme or worldview. So what they're basically doing is they have this theme that they're trying to push, an Islamic theme, and then they're cherry-picking the, ver- the, the story from the biblical narratives to fit that theme. And it's not just the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's actually stories that also come from other, other religious or other uh, prophets that were local in the region as well. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what they're trying to do with that. So let's talk about this topic of abrogation, because I think this probably, some of you may have heard this term. So a, a discussion of the Quran for, for the non-Muslim, those of those sitting here, inevitably, inevitably need, needs to deal with the topic of abrogation or the replacing of one authoritative text for another. So this is why. What do we? Why is there the fact that at one point we can talk about violence, and at the next point uh, it says, you know, live peacefully. You know, the people of the book. You know, uh, house. You know, uh, household of faith. These kind of thing. So how do you correlate these these ideas? At its widest understanding, Muslim the, Muslim theologians apply this concept to the Jewish and Christian scriptures being superseded or replaced with the Quran. So that's what that means is that's how, at its widest point, abrogation is basically what, what the Quran is doing. <coughs> it's replacing the Old Testament, replacing the New Testament. So replacing of one text for another. The concept of abrogation becomes more problematic and controversial when it is applied to the Quran itself. Begging which, you know, if you're thinking, begs the question of why God, who is omniscient, who is unchanging, has changed his mind on a particular topic. So at one point, God says, reveals to Muhammad, you know, put this people to the sword, and then at another point says, well, you know, live in harmony with this, these people. Why, why does God change his mind if God is unchanging? Uh, an important turning point in the Islamic understanding of this concept was the linking of the Quranic text with the life or the biography of Muhammad, the Sunnah. We thought we were some of the example, the life, the biography of the Prophet, the Sunnah. This is where uh, the the name Sunni comes from. This this phrase, the Sunnah. A protocol could then be established on which revelations have authority to abrogate earlier ones. Although there are a number of examples and instances, for our purposes, we want to examine the verses dealing with warfare because I think that's the one that, for a lot of us, we may have heard of or at least be more interested in. The, so I mentioned the sword verse, Surah 9, verse 5, and I'll read it. But when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. But if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, then open the way for them, for God is oft forgiving, most merciful. So in in considering this verse and others like it, a number of interpretations have been put forth. Uh, That verses like these being newer 
trump the older verses, which teach a more peaceful and accommodating view. The argument here would be that the early surahs correspond with the earlier phase of Muhammad's career when the community was small and unable to push their views on others. And then later verses, like the one I just read, like this one, are given at a time of relative strength for Muhammad and the community. And this, by the way, is the, is the position of the Islamic extremists. Uh, for From a, a moderate Muslim position, this is problematic since using abrogation in this fashion goes against the spirit of the practice. Since the Quran is the actual word of God, previous verses cannot simply be written away as this seems to be would be an assault on God's revelation in himself. Remember, we talked about the importance of the Quran, the, word, the very words of the Quran. But then if we abrogate things and we just say, well, these no longer matter because these newer ones trump that, we seem to be actually discounting, you know, going against what we've actually been learning. Uh, rather, what is normally supposed to happen is that the conflict in verses means that the underlying meaning is misunderstood and be, must be reconciled. This is kind of what we would do as Christians if you know the, what, the analogy of faith. So the clearer passages help us to understand the less clear passages of Scripture. And this is what the, the, the moderate Muslim uh, would, would actually be trying to say, is that when we have these two verses that seem to be in conflict with each other, we're actually, if, if we see there's a conflict, then we don't really understand what the verses are getting at. And this is the moderate Muslim position. Um, so, Wes, question. Do they have any kind of uh, thing, that's any any dispensational thinking at all? In other words, in other words, uh, we would we would use those. We would say to those that accuse, "Well, your God wants to do genocide." And we would say, uh, that was for the nation of Israel. Uh, this is the church. That was a completely different dispensation. God's house rules are, were different for them. We don't do a lot of things that the nation of Israel did. Do, do the Muslims have any kind of... Yeah, so that's what I was referring to. So some would actually say they wouldn't... I mean, there would be some Muslims who would say exactly something to that effect, is that those earlier... Uh, uh, verses that that are more violent are dealing with a period of time where there was a lot more violence being committed against Muhammad and his community. So the very nature of the, the revelations had a more violent aspect because they're being persecuted, because they're being chased and hounded by these Meccan tribes. So there's a there's a need for for more a more violent approach to this thing. Uh, and then you know, the more peaceful part comes when Muhammad is actually, you know, the tribes in a strong positions. They defeated the Meccans already. Uh, they've taken the, the city of Mecca, and now he's just ruling from the mosque. And so there are those who would say that. The problem is, is as I pointed out, then that seems to say that um, because you're not dealing, you know, with dispensationalism, you're saying, you know, you're talking about the entity of Israel and the, the church. There is no, there is no corresponding concept in Islam. You know, it's just the the ummah, the religious. I think that's on a. I didn't write that. Uh, the community, the whole community of faith, all the Muslims worldwide, the ummah. You know, there is. You're just seen as one unit. So there's, you can't. They don't, they don't break it up like that. And so there, there's, 
uh, by trying to say that, you know, they would not be able to say that, you know, God dealt with it, this group in a different way than, than this group. Um, but in short, there is, a, there is somewhat going on, but that's also under dispute uh, because of what I just said. So some would say that goes against, that seems to discount what, what the Quran, the value of the Quran, if you can just say that these verses no longer matter or they don't apply anymore. Because you actually will have that people will kind of sometimes take that approach with the Bible. Well, I don't have to read the Old Testament; it doesn't apply to our lives anymore. You know, the, there's a the dark side. I don't want to say dark side of dispensationalism is that we don't read, we don't need to read the Old Testament because it's just Israel. It has no applicability of our to our lives anymore. You know, uh, and so some churches you never hear preaching from the Old Testament. You know, so there's you know you kind of have that have that problem going on. It's probably more than what you want. Any other questions? Okay. So, we're going to land this thing, this topic, without answering a lot of questions. There's probably more questions going on than we started. <laughs> yeah. Is the Sunnah a book? No, the Sunnah, well, it's, it's a concept. It's, it's a religious concept. It basically, the Sunnah is, is the biography, the life, the practices, uh, the sayings of the prophet. So, but it's not a book. It's recorded in the book. Is would be that these are recorded in the hadith. But the sunnah itself, they're just re- referring to, you know, what he did and what he said. Yeah. And so the the Sunnis take their their name their cue off of this, saying that we're following, you know, the, the example of the prophet. Um, okay, so so the, in the film we watched, if you remember the message, Mustafa Akkad's movie, The Message, uh, the significance can easily be missed by the um, non-Muslim. The message, you know, the title the, the, of the movie, The Message. The religion of Islam is not just the religion of Muhammad. He is the goal, he is the, the person to which Muslims are trying to aspire but he's just the messenger. It's, it is the message that is important, the Quran itself. So uh, Islam has rightly been re- referred to or called the religion of the Quran. So that's really the Quran being the, the, the message of what God is revealing is really the important aspect. Then, you know, that of course raises the question, so why don't more Muslims read the Quran or something? But at least talking from a philosophical point of view or on the on the surface, that's... Uh, what's going on? So, any questions on that before we we jump to our our next topic? All right. So now uh, we're talking about leadership and authority after Muhammad, and this will lead right into our topic on the Shia. So we'll spend hopefully be able to get into a good chunk of this, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, we'll move into our topic on the Shia. Uh, we've mentioned previously that after. Muhammad's death, the leadership of the Islamic community, otherwise known as the Ummah, uh, fell to the caliphs. So we talked a little bit of that first word, caliph, um, in Arabic, khalifa, means, you know, comes from the root to be behind the one who follows. The question we want to answer in this section is how this process, or actually lack of process, affected the development of the Islamic faith and how the ensuing conflict over leadership has affected the relationship of the two major branches 
of the Islamic faith, the Sunni and the Shia. So if you remember, we talked about the two major branches of Islam, the Sunni, which are the majority, probably somewhere around 65%, and then 30% roughly Shia in the world of the Muslims. And how this, we talked about, you know, this pro, what, why, when Muhammad died, there was nothing in place. And so what, when, by not having any, anything in place for the leadership of the community and that conflict that happens, how does that, why, how does that shape what Islam looks like today and what we see today? How is that fleshed out when we look at what's going on in Iraq? If you pay attention to the news, what's going on in Saudi Arabia with Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. So Lebanon just, the prime minister just stepped down and he's in Saudi Arabia right now and they think, well, Saudi Arabia pushed the, the, the Lebanese prime minister to step down. And why, did, why would they be interested in that? Because Saudi Arabia exports this brand of Sunni Islam across the world and Le, you know Lebanon is dealing with this uh, Shia group, Hezbollah, and so you, you still, to this very day, literally to this week, the repercussions, you can still see the Sunni-Shia conflict be going on. So Yemen, you hear about what's going on in Yemen right now with all, with the blockade that the Saudi Arabia has, the starving, you know, there's starvation going on worldwide. You know, I think it's like every 10 minutes a child is dying in Yemen right now because of this, this Saudi blockade and the bombing going on. Why is that going on? Because there's this Shia insurgency going on. The Shia have taken control of the government. Saudi Arabia doesn't like that, being a Sunni country. So all this kind of, uh, you still see to this day. Uh, we may be tempted to understand the birth, that birth of the Islamic community under Muhammad as the start of a worldwide movement. So we, we want to think about that, you know, trace. So under Muhammad, all of a sudden, you have this worldwide movement get started uh, with far-reaching, long-standing effects. But the reality is that up until Muhammad's death, and then shortly after it, life largely moved on the same trajectory as it had prior to Muhammad. So the life in Arabia, pretty much, there was a little bit of changes in Central Arabia, but it basically went on in the same way that it always had. You know, there was a different set of leaders, but for the average person, not, not a lot had changed. Arts, religion, language, culture, largely unaffected up until right after Muhammad's death. And that's what we were just talking about. Why is it that right up until, right, even until Muhammad's death, that he basically is just letting people, that, that as long as they pay the tribute, he lets them live the way they want. He doesn't make them change. Christians are allowed to remain Christians. Jews are allowed to remain Jews. There's no change going on. Uh, Muhammad dies in 632, uh, you know, in his home, in the arms of his wife. He had left no instructions for the community and no guidelines for leadership after his death. On some level, this shouldn't have caused too much of a problem. After all, they had the writings. Remember, we talked that there's no Quran at this point, but they had the whole, all the writings in different, you know, in different places. I mean, you know, on sheets of, we talk parchment or whatever. They had the writings, though. They had Muhammad's example. So the new community wasn't without guidance. They had subdued all their local enemies. They controlled Mecca. They controlled all of Central Arabia. So why why is this why why, why is there a problem? So the answer is tied to the communal roots of the culture in which Islam emerged. So this is kind of I think an important concept to understand. 
we'll flesh this out a little bit more. Uh, we discussed a bit about tribal culture. We also mentioned that for all the early followers of Muhammad, following him meant cleaving or breaking with the old life and safeguards that existed in their own culture. The noteworthy aspect of what Muhammad did some 1,400 years ago was to break old patterns of life to show a new way forward, but to do it in a context or a framework that the Arabs can understand. So he, and, you know, he's presenting a new worldview, a new religion, a new revelation from God, but he is masking it or, or putting it into the framework that they already understand. You know, of, of, he's not trying to break uh, their existing way of life and insert something foreign into Arabia. So what do I mean by this? Leadership of the community was no longer simply a matter of following a tribal sheikh. Women were no longer community, uh, just property. Life took on a meaning in ways it never had under the animist, polytheist culture that was present before. But it did all of this in a cultural setting that kept key older patterns in place, namely the family culture. No longer was the family culture just a blood bond but now it was a bond of faith. Bonds built on the ties of shared monotheistic belief that transcended tribe, transcended ethnicity, transcended gender. A new tribe, a new tribe was formed and Muhammad was its sheikh. The people had some place to turn to as they turned away from their old life. And that's really the important concept we need to understand. You know, and, we, and I'll, again, I'll flesh this out what this means for us today. There was something for them to turn to as they broke those old patterns, get cleaved away from the old pattern of life. From my own experience, uh, and I can, I can say uh, that the lack of community um, is is a serious, probably the number one issue for for Muslims who come to faith in Christ. So we're talking, you know, now putting aside what we just talked about, talking about right now, 2017, as we see Muslims come to Christ. Lack of community is the number one issue. What, what are they coming into? You know, what what do you have? Uh, because the the centrality of family, of that that family structure, in a Muslim's life, what what's going to take that place? It doesn't make a difference uh, in the stories uh, I've heard. Whether it's a Muslim, uh, someone from a Muslim background in a Muslim country. So when I was in the West Bank in Palestine, this was the case. You know, the, the Muslims who had come to Christ couldn't go to churches. They didn't have, they couldn't, you know, worship with other people because they were scared. There was no community. So they kept sliding back to, because there was a need. You know, for us, you know, in my own life, you know, I, I, I'm like, you know, see my aunts and uncles maybe once a year. And I'm like, man, I see, I gotta see them again at Christmas. I don't know, like, you know, like that's just, you know, my own, my own background. You know, we, we just, didn't spend a lot of time with our aunts and uncles and our, our extended family. With Arab culture, with with Middle Eastern culture in general, I mean, Middle Eastern, across the board, Middle Eastern culture, not just Muslim. Um, that's, not, that's not the case. You spend a lot of time with extended family. Um, so I say true community tends to be one of, if not the biggest hardship for new Christians from Muslim backgrounds to face. In fact, uh, it's one of the main issues that makes coming to Christ such a hard decision. One that often causes a strong desire for those who make a profession of faith 
in Christ to be pulled back to previous lifestyles. So it's hard for us, as I said, to really understand or appreciate the importance for community from someone of Middle Eastern descent. Um, what does that mean? On a surface level, it means you know seeing relatives every week, if not every day. You know when I when I the air the when I was in the West Bank in Palestine, you know the extended family lived physically close, like they lived in the same neighborhood, and so aunts, uncles, cousins saw each other every single day. And you know there may be a time for those of you of a, you know uh, of an older generation. You may you may have had those same type of relationships with extended family where you saw each other on a regular basis, but it's hard for us in our own culture to understand that that, that closeness. It means living with multiple generations of your own family. So whether it's you know you might have your grandmother, your mom, your mom and dad, and you know your family all living in the same house, but you know maybe three apartments in the same house. Multiple generations in the same house. I mean, you know, that's, you know, we, we joke. I mean, there's a truth to it, right? We, you know, the kid turns 18. You know, my mom, when I was 19, she was like, you got to go. <laughs> I mean, it was because I was a bad kid. But she, she, she literally said, you got to go. Uh, there was none of this she's sticking around. Uh, sacrificing personal choice for what's best for the family. I mean, that's a foreign concept. You know, are you going to give up? The idea of, you know, taking a certain career or a certain job position because, you know, I need to be around with my family. I gotta take care of my parents or my grandmother or my cousins. I wanna be around, help my brother take care of their kids. You know, that kind of thing. Sacrificing your own personal choice. On a deeper level, it means security. It means identity. It means your future. So, what do I mean by that? You know, it, we're talking about in countries that have weak central governments, you know, failed states. Your family, your clan, your your extended family is your safety net. They're the ones who provide protection. They're the ones who pro- help you get the resources you need. Success, failure of the whole family is all, the whole family. We either all make it or none of us are going to make it because we're all going to throw in our ties together. Your identity is tied to your ex- whole extended family. Your future, how do you get your job? How do you get your career? How do you get your wife? Your parents are the ones setting up you know, that spouse for you. It's not, uh, it's just a matter of, it's not just a matter of what you do, but of your family name. You know, we talk here, you know, what's the first, if you meet somebody new, you reach a certain age, and usually one of the first points of conversation is, well, what do you do for a living? And that helps us to order where we're at. You know, well, I'm, you know, I do manual labor, and this guy's a CEO of a a big corporation, he's a VP, and okay, so now I know socioeconomic, you know, we're here and here. It's not just about what you do for a living, but your family name, who your parents are, what your children did, how your wife is perceived in the community. We were in this uh, candidate school in Phoenix, and we were talking about the fact that in these cultures, people will say, you know, well, all of a sudden, if your wife is, is viewed in a certain way, uh, the one guy was telling a story that as a foreigner, they couldn't make any contacts or make any friends in the community. But all of a sudden, his wife just did something in the community that all of a sudden sh- that showed them that she was actually a virtuous woman, even though she was a foreigner. And all of a sudden, everyone in the community opened up to her because there was this connecting of honor with the wife's honor with the whole family. It wasn't just a matter of what I do, me being virtuous. It's actually the community seeing, interacting, that kind of thing. 
turning out for as a community for weddings. You know, the whole city turns out. You know, the whole town turns out. Funerals. You know, someone you may not even know except by name. Now, whether these are good things or bad things, it's not really the point. It's just the reality for a person from a Middle Eastern background. Breaking old community ties, then, without having a new community to join, can then be not just intimidating, it really is the deal breaker. I mean, so, uh, I don't know if you guys have come across any of this, but, yeah. Phil. I was going to say, I would say that, just in my experiences, with, like, even just Christian Lebanese, and then we have Lebanese friends that are Muslim, you know, to get to the point where you can talk about stuff like this, it's so relational and it's so familial, you know, and so to be able to get to a point where you're comfortable talking about this kind of stuff and like hearing each other, respect is is everything, yeah. you know, and, you know, I forget how it goes in Arabic, my grandmother would always say, you know, family just shows up is the Arabic saying, yeah. you just show up, and when we were going to weddings or funerals, people I didn't even really know, it was like a fourth cousin or, but you just go, yeah. if it happens, you go, and that's a way that we were able to like make friends with and you know kind of have that slow burn conversion with Muslim Lebanese that my mom worked with and that we just knew through other families is that it's you know just years of just being there yep. just show up yep. just show up and because a lot of the the cultural values are so similar yep. you know between between uh, Christians and Muslims you know the, we value a lot of the same things right. and so I just think that that's just really important as you get to know more people, Arabic people, or Muslim people, it's just, just taking time. Time is everything. Yeah. Quality time is everything. Yeah, and and an openness and a, and a willingness to, like, be uncomfortable and, like, go yes. do things you may not exactly... Yeah. You know, because we're very, like, schedule-oriented people. So, like, man, I got this appointment, and I can't really... I don't know if I can spend the next three hours sitting at this Eat guy's some house. Eat some yeah. more. Eat some more. So, but yeah. you really have to. Joe. Uh, me and what you're describing it, uh, a family in this, a family in this situation would be very collective, meaning you all work as one big unit. Exactly. Yeah, collective identity. Yeah, exactly. And my question is because of the way you're saying a family lives as one unit, so it seems to me it's once they move into that unit, they're meant to live their whole life in that unit. They're, meant to, they're not meant to, like, we are able to, oh, I can transfer to PA for a job. Right. In, in this community, they don't travel that far from home. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. I mean, there's no sense of um, I'm going to get married and go away from my family. Like, it's going to be, I'm going to get married and we're just going to live, like, still close and I'm still going to see my parents every day. You know, there's not even a desire for me to, like, go away. The idea of, like, sending your kids out and go, like, go and make your own life, it's just... So Joe is actually... It's a great observation. There's just no, there's no independent streak. You know, it's very collective, and this ties into uh, both why we, what we need to do, think about as we interact with Muslims. But it also helps to us understand why, why there was this development when Muhammad dies. What is the crisis that all of a sudden needs to be addressed? It's because, in their mind. You know, we're going to stop here. But in their mind, they're thinking, where do I go now? I just broke all my all my tribal, you know, bonds. I have no family now to go back to. I don't have a clan, a tribe to protect me. And now this whole thing is going to fall apart with Muhammad dead. 
So there's this real crisis of identity, a crisis of community. What happens now to all of us that that all of a sudden drives this desire, this need to find something? It's not just a matter of personal piety. It's we we need to find someone to run this thing because we we are, we this is our identity now. And last question. I'm sorry, but but I, there's there's something seems to be stronger than that. Money. How did Henry Ford get all the Arabs to come to Dearborn except money? Uh, they had to break. They had to break. Well, okay, but wait. I was just going to say though, but it, that's they brought that old pattern with them. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't break and then start yeah, something they all new. Came together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you go into Dearborn, it's it's whole neighborhoods, right? Or you know, where I lived in Dearborn, one family at the corner of Oakwood and I don't remember what the cross street was. One family owned three houses on the corner. It was one family, extended family. You know, so it, it, they brought that old pattern with them. So, all right, we're going to end there. Let me close this in prayer. If there's any questions, stick around and we'll deal with it after. But let me close this. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We just ask for your grace and blessing that this knowledge that we've been able to share and to just explore together would help us in our interactions with our Muslim neighbors, friends, and coworkers. Help us, Lord, to be intentional in our relationships that we might glorify you in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.